0: So far this Advent season, we've uh, looked at Jesus as uh, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam, uh, the son of the woman, the son of David. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at Jesus as the son of God. And it may not be exactly what you're expecting. So we have a surprise for us, so to speak. Um, in In the genealogy in Luke 3 we find these words in verse 38 at the end of the genealogy. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. It's interesting that Luke calls Adam the son of God, and we'll get to that in a little bit. We're going to draw a lot on Hebrews chapter 1, so I'm going to read that. Or again, to him, uh, sorry, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says... Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you the oil of glad with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, I indeed feel uh, woefully insufficient and inadequate for these things about which the Scriptures speak. But I am reminded that you reminded Judah, after the exile, that the promises that they received would not be accomplished by Judah's might and power, they would actually be done by your Spirit. And like them, we need your Spirit to come to illumine the Scriptures, to apply them uh, to us and for us, uh, to enable us to believe that which the Scriptures teach, to sanctify us, to stir us up to worship as we hear and believe. And may he do these things and more through Jesus' name. Amen. It is Christmas, and as I was on the um, Arizona Daily Star's website last night, they had the Santa tracker, and uh, at the moment I happened to see it, uh, he was supposedly near Havana, Cuba, which I thought, they don't believe in anything in Havana. Well, not many people believe uh, in Christ in Havana. There are some, thankfully, but uh, there was also the gift count which was like at 8316000000 and and going. Strange that we have this view of a man in a red suit who rides in a sleigh that is uh, driven by reindeers that fly and goes around the world uh, distributing gifts to children big and small. He also goes by the name of St. Nicholas. That's actually, Santa Claus is a shortened form of St. Nicholas. And it's interesting because we don't know a whole lot about this particular man named St. Nicholas. But what we do know has sort of been extended and twisted to a sense to create this myth Hopefully, I'm not destroying any people's lives right now. Um, <laughs> maybe you cover children's ears. Uh, this, this myth that we have called Santa Claus. Okay? There are true elements of this man's life that have been taken and exaggerated into creating this idea. Now, the reason I bring this up is that there are some who think that the same thing happened with Jesus that there was an ordinary man that went by the name of Jesus who lived and died, and that uh, over the course of time, the church that arose had taken some of these ideas and and shifted them and created a myth about a man who was God. There's a problem with that. It's called the Scriptures. (laughs) which we believe actually teach these things, though the church grew in its understanding of how they all fit together, the church has always believed that Jesus was more than a mere man, that Jesus was indeed God the Son. But the church has struggled with what I kind of identify as three threads that the Scripture weaves together, and we see these in particular here in um, Hebrews chapter 1. We have a tendency to tangle these three threads together in our minds as we think about who Jesus is, and therefore we can become very confused at best and a heretic at worst. William Lane, in talking about this chapter, compares it not to threads, but so it says this, like the alternating patterns of a kaleidoscope. Remember that, people? Did you ever get one of those for Christmas? I think many of us did. Uh, you know, you, you looked at it, and you closed one eye, and you stuck, stuck it to the other eye, and you, you twisted it, and the colors would change and move around in different patterns. And so William Lane is kind of comparing this to a kaleidoscope. Uh, As it is turned in the hand, we are asked to consider Jesus, who is the eternal Son, Jesus, who is the incarnate Son, Jesus, who is the exalted Son. And so, in a sense, I'm stealing from William Lane these ideas of that I believe are scriptural, Uh, Jesus, the eternal Son, Jesus, the incarnate Son, and Jesus, the still incarnate but now exalted Son, to make sense of what we should mean when we speak of Jesus, the Son of God. Don't worry, there's a payoff on this, I think. The big idea this morning is that the Son came to save and give gifts. Yes, there's a tie-in there. The eternal Son, first off, is fully divine. The shocking part about Christmas, which we celebrate the birth of Jesus, is that his conception is not the beginning of his life. It was the beginning of your life, your conception. You did not exist before that moment when two things joined together in the uterus, and boom, now you have person. But with Jesus, it was a little different. He has always existed. When we see this baby, if we were there... We, there was a lot more going on than met the eye. There was a lot more that going on than we had with the average birth of a child or anyone sitting in this room. We see this in John one one. In the beginning was the Word. Now, John doesn't mean that the be- that the word came into being at the beginning, but at the beginning, at the point of creation, the word already was. And he he continues that the word was with God, face to face with God, and so the word there was some distinction between the word and God, and yet he continues, the word was God. We begin to see the mystery of the Trinity unfolded in that ver- that one sentence. So much is communicated, and we don't have time to look at that. But if you go back a couple of Christmases, we looked at John 1 1 for a whole sermon. Go back, listen to it, and. Hear that. But one of the things that John continues on in that first paragraph of John's gospel is that by him or through him, all things were created, which were created. And so Jesus took part into the creation of everything. Not only that, but we see here in Hebrews 1, as well as in Colossians chapter 1, that he continues to hold everything together by the power of his word. And so... This baby that Mary was holding, this baby that Mary had to feed, this baby that Mary and Joseph had to change, this baby that was so utterly and completely dependent upon these two human beings was the one who at that very same moment was holding all of creation together. That's one powerful baby. And yet, as we note, one dependent baby. It wasn't like he popped out of the womb and was speaking full sentences in 15 different languages and had five skills. He was a baby, a real baby. Tim Keller recently noted the threatening impact or aspect of the ministry of Jesus that we can easily miss. He said that Christmas is both more wondrous and more threatening than we imagine. I can't read that and not think of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. This is because my mind is warped but i'm reminded of when the, the knights of the round table are looking for the holy grail and they come upon the enchanter they call tim okay who tells them where the you know where to find the next clue to discover the location of this holy grail but he mentions to them that it is guarded by a creature that is most fearsome that has big sharp pointy teeth and they're afraid and tim leads them to the cave, and they see the bones that are strewn about the cave. And they're afraid. And then you see the bunny hopping out of the mouth of the cave, and then Tim goes, oh, there it is, ah! And they're like, what? All we see is a rabbit. they are lulled into complacency by the docile nature or appearance of the rabbit. And as two of them march out and one declares, "Ah, time for rabbit stew, they are killed by the flying rabbit as it basically bites their heads off. To which the remaining knights of the round table mention that that rabbit's dynamite. Jesus, as we think about Christmas, a baby seems so innocent, seems so non-threatening, and yet just as any parent recognizes, uh, a baby changes your world. This baby didn't come to change a person's world, but the whole world. This baby came to threaten everybody's kingdom for the establishment of his own kingdom. And so the coming of Jesus is wondrous but it's also threatening because he does not come to maintain the status quo in anybody's life, but he comes to rip it to pieces in order to establish his righteous kingdom. It is good that he does this. It is not pleasant when he does this. This week, my son had surgery. It was good for him to have surgery. It did not feel good for him to have surgery and so there was fear and trepidation not just with him but also with us because we knew that there are you know possible consequences that may happen in all of this and 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 so it is with the coming of Jesus that our flesh fears what he may do. But we have to remind ourselves that what he promises to do is good, even though it might not feel good in the process. There was no one else who could set things right because it was such a a horrible mess that Adam had made by his first sin. Now we know he is fully divine, not only from what we see in John 1.1, 1, 1, but also what we see here in Hebrews. For we have this statement, let all the angels worship him. It would be sin For the angels to worship someone who was not God. And so here we see the reality that the angels' faithful are properly worshiping this Son of God as God Himself. We see it as well in, in that, that he's fully divine in that the disciples worshipped him on a couple of occasions. One was after he was walking on water and he stilled the storm, and another was after the resurrection when Thomas declares, my Lord and my God, and Jesus doesn't rebuke him. If he was sinning and by committing idolatry by worshipping Jesus, then Jesus, as a good Jew, would have rebuked him. But we see, in fact, that Jesus received worship because, in fact, he was the eternal Son who is fully divine. This is the thread that people like Arius neglected. You see, Arius thought that the Son was the first created being. He failed to recognize the worship that this son properly received, and that in order to properly receive it, he must be divine, not simply the first creature. And so many of you are familiar perhaps with Athanasius' declaration, sort of mocking Arius, worship the creature. Only a few of you perhaps are familiar with the fact that Nicholas, was also at the Council of Nicaea, because Nicholas had been born in Asia Minor, what we now call Turkey, and Nicholas was bishop of a town called Myra, and that Nicholas was one of the people's delegates sent to the Council of Nicaea to discuss the doctrine of the, um, of Jesus, the Christology. Is he really God? Because that Arius had introduced that controversy, and that Nicholas had a confrontation with Arius, and is reported to have struck him for his heresy. We don't know what that last part, but people like to put it on a meme on Facebook, it sounds good, okay? But he did certainly have a confrontation, and we do know that while Nicholas was bishop of Myra, Arianism was not to be found in that region, And so he was a staunch defender of the fact that the eternal son is fully divine. And so we see that the baby born to Mary was the eternal son who would come to tabernacle among us. Secondly, the second thread, the incarnate son chose humiliation for our salvation. We see in places like Philippians chapter 2 that he humbled himself, though he was in the form of God, he did not, consider it rob- and did not consider it robbery to cling to these things, he humbled himself, he emptied himself, made himself nothing, and became a man. He took on flesh, as we heard last night from Pastor Chelpka uh, on John 1, verse 14, but we see as well that he was made less than angels, which indicates that he was previously more than angels, so we have John 1:14. We also have Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 for instance, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And so the author of Hebrews focuses on the incarnation in particular in chapter 2 of that letter in his uh, his sermon to these people. exalted as the eternal son became flesh, made lower than the angels for a time in order that he might accomplish certain things which included dying death Suffering this so that he might taste death for everyone. And then, as we will see in a few moments, is exalted. What I'm getting at here is that many of the passages that we think point us to the divinity of Jesus may actually be pointing us to his humanity. Let's think for a moment of the baptism and the transfiguration that we see in um, Matthew 3 and Matthew 9, respectively, and parallel texts in Luke's gospel. And so that probably ought to help us understand Luke's gospel uh, statement in the, at the end of the genealogy. But in all of those accounts, we see this being said. There's a voice from the cloud. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And it's natural for us to jump to the conclusion that it's talking about the divinity of Jesus, but it most likely is not speaking about the divinity of Jesus directly but we see that he is the son of god in the same sense that adam was the son of god that he has been he is being received the eternal son takes on flesh okay did his humanity become divinity no And so as the Father speaks these words in the baptism and the transfiguration, he is speaking about the Son as his role as mediator, as the incarnate one who is going to set right all the things that Adam, the first son of God, messed up. Okay? That's why we have to remember the first thread. Okay? Okay? If we, if we only focus on the first thread, then we, we can easily fall into what uh, what uh, Reverend Chupka mentioned last night, the docetism, that Jesus only appeared to be human. In his humanity, we see that he is also declared to be the Son of God for the purpose of restoring that which Adam destroyed. He, in other words, he perfectly revealed the Father's glory as the image of God in His humanity. We see that in chapter 1 of John's Gospel, verse 18, He exegeted or made known the Father by who He was. We see that as well here in Hebrews chapter 1, where it talks about He is, uh, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And then, amazingly, he upholds the universe. So, he humbles himself in taking on humanity. He also humbled himself for our salvation by dying as a man in the place of sinners. He was made like us, precisely so. He could die because a man must die for the sins of men, But he also did this in order to destroy the works of the devil, as we see in Hebrews chapter 2. It's interesting, the the humiliation aspect that we find here. Uh, Nicholas, let's go back to Nicholas for a second he also most likely experienced extreme humiliation. Though he was the bishop of Myrna, he most likely suffered under the persecutions of Diocletian and Maximus. Probably, possibly removed from office, if not imprisoned for this. But back to Jesus. As the Son of God, we see as the incarnate Son of God in particular, in verse 2 of Hebrews 1, we see that God has spoken to us by him. He is the prophet. We see as well that in addition to revealing the way of God, the way of salvation rather, as the prophet, he is also our priest. He is the way of salvation because he made purification for sins. In other words, We have sins. They need to be removed. We cannot remove them. We needed someone to come in our stead to remove them, and that someone is Jesus, and that removal is received by faith in Christ and His work. And so the eternal Son became the incarnate Son to reveal and to procure our salvation. The third thread. The incarnate Son was exalted to give us gifts. You see, uh, we can also struggle with some of these texts that seem to indicate that Jesus became exalted, that Jesus received a name, and if we focus just on those texts at the exclusion of the other two threads, then what we find is a human Jesus that then becomes a super-Jesus. As opposed to the incarnate Son, who was humiliated for a time and then is exalted. Which is what we find in places like Philippians chapter 2, for instance. But these passages, which are actually numerous, refer to the incarnate Son who is exalted after after his humiliation for our salvation. And so what we find, I believe, is that Scripture is far more dynamic than we tend to be we tend to think that something is used the same way every time it's used. And it it never fails to uh, boggle my mind, for instance, when a pastor says, Oh, leaven. Leaven is always used in Scripture for sin. It speaks of the kingdom that way the ki- the kingdom is like leaven that is placed in dough is the leaven in that instance sin i hope not <laughs> it's the gospel that works its way through the whole of the dough to to change transform it all and so leaven is not used yeast is not used to to describe sin every time in scripture Scripture is far more dynamic than we tend to be, but as uh, someone once said, consistency is the hobgoblins of of little minds. We we want it really simple sometimes, and so we we flatten everything. All right, let's get back to the non-flattening. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? And now what you'll find is this is the first of a number of Old Testament passages that are quoted by the author of Hebrews. In other words, he wants to communicate, I'm not making this stuff up. It's all in there in the Scriptures you already have. Okay? So he quotes here first off from Psalm 2. And this sounds really strange to apply to Jesus you are my son, today I have begotten you. It's like there is a time when the son wasn't begotten, and we can be confused if we think it's speaking to him with respect to his eternal nature. Right? How are we to understand this? There are two texts that I think resolve this. The first is Romans 1, verse 4 talking about Jesus who was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so what Paul says there in the very beginnings of Romans is that according to his human nature, he was of the the line of David, okay, but God declared him to be the Son of God through the resurrection. Okay, now, let's go back again. Does that mean that he's talking about the eternal son or not? It gets See, this is why I was worried about this sermon. <laughs> it can easily get clogged in the brain. Acts 13, verse 32 and 33. Paul in a sermon says, and we bring you the good news of what God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, I have begotten you. He's speaking there saying that the resurrection is the exaltation of the Son that was promised in Psalm 2. That's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is referring to. That Jesus, the incarnate Son, has been exalted in His resurrection. And now he sits at the right hand of God the Father through the ascension. This is the resurrection and ascension of Messiah tied into the installation of David's greatest son. Hebrews doesn't stop, he quotes Psalm 45. And it's a, ver- it's a passage that's very reminiscent of Psalm 110. Jesus quotes Psalm 110 when he, when he baffles the people who'd come to baffle him. And he says, so tell me, and he quotes from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, of whom was David speaking? Yeah. Who was David's Lord? Jesus, the greatest son of David, is greater than David. Okay, it's what, it's what the Pharisees and the scribes couldn't kind of put together. So this, this quotation from Psalm 45 is similar to that, because it says, okay, it's, it's interesting, it says, of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. talks about the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom, that, that the, the, this God that sits on the throne has loved righteousness, hated wickedness. And then we get the, the, the clincher here. Therefore, God, your God. Wait a minute. You just said he's God. It's just like Yahweh said to my Adonai, my master, which is applied to Jesus, the eternal son who becomes the incarnate Son. Here we have Jesus, the eternal Son, O oh God, who is now also the incarnate Son and recognizes the Father. See? Try to wrap your head around that. It's like a Matrix moment for you. it You can't think too hard about this. or You'll go crazy. Um, but that's, what it's, that's what's there. The the eternal Son is divine, but again, He took on flesh in order to serve as Messiah, to deliver, and having done so, He is then exalted to this throne. Let's jump back to Ephesians 4 for a moment. We'll see what He does as this exalted one. I just went too far. I'm going to pick up in verse seven. <clears throat> in the previous verses of this chapter, he's talking about the unity within the body. Okay, you're all one in Christ. Uh, you know, you you are all part of His body. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. Okay. But now he gets to diversity within the body. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Okay? This is actually an odd interpretation of what we, th- at least what we think is Psalm 68, verse 18, because in in every other version of Psalm 68, verse 18, it's he received gifts. But here it says, he gave gifts. But in both places, it's talking about the fact that he is the ascended one. He, He descended, and now he has ascended. He's conquered. There are prisoners following him, and what happens? When you are a conquering king, you get the plunder. You get the riches of the people that you have just conquered. And so there's that aspect of receiving gifts. But what do you do with that plunder? You give it to you, away to your faithful friends to your generals who uh, led the troops and some of the troops that fought the battle. And so Paul is focusing on the reality that Christ does not keep the plunder to himself, but that he gives it away richly, freely, to those who are part of his body. Nicholas. Well, how do we get to a man in a red suit giving away gifts to children? Nicholas received the great inheritance, but Nicholas didn't keep the great inheritance. He gave it away to the poor because he thought, I am a bishop. What do I need with all this money? If only so many televangelists had the same mindset. Okay. We see Christ giving us the gift of salvation, but here we also see in Ephesians 4 that the church receives, and individuals within the church receive gifts of service. It's not just the five-fold ministry that is talked about here, you know, um, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. That's not the only thing that that Jesus pours out upon his church. But we see him giving of, of his riches of his bounty to his people. happened to listen to a, a sermon by uh, Sinclair Ferguson, and he talked about when he was a child, and Queen Elizabeth ascended to the throne and He said that everyone got gifts out of the largest lar- largesse rather of the, uh, of the queen 's possessions and he noted that uh, places like Edinburgh were known for their their uh, Christian heritage and strength of faith and so people there got bibles but he lived in glasgow glasgow was known for rotten teeth because people loved sweets not jesus and so what he got <laughs> was a mug with uh, some uh, you know with the queen's likeness on it and and filled with candy and he said the candy didn't last the day and the mug didn't last the week because he broke it and wishes he now had it to sell on eBay. Jesus does not give candy in a mug. Jesus does not give Xbox. Jesus gives things that are necessary, as we see, as we read a little farther in Ephesians chapter 4, for the building up of the body, so that it might attain to the fullness of Christ. In other words, mature personhood. In addition to the gift of salvation that we receive by faith, we also receive by that same faith gifts of service. And we receive different gifts of service. So that each part works together so that the whole body grows as Paul talks about there in Ephesians chapter 4. Some of our Christmas gifts can be useless or trivial. Some can be hard to find. This is a little reverse and backwards, so to speak, but I had trouble finding one of the gifts I'd gotten for one of my children. I'd bought it so many months ago, I couldn't remember where I put it. I don't think he's going to have that problem. But there might be other children who have gifts, particular gifts, that they can't remember what they've done with them because they were so unimportant. I got that. The gifts that Jesus gives are important. And they're meant to be used, not hidden away, not tucked away so that we forget them. They're meant to be put to service for the benefit of one another. They're meant to be used frequently. Don't let the gifts that he has given you sit on a shelf to rust, rot, fall apart. Utilize them so that not only you, but the rest of the body comes to more uh, maturity in the fullness of Christ. All right, I promised you a shorter sermon. I don't know if I delivered. But we see that the myth of Santa Claus is an extension of a very real person that developed... Over time, it tends to highlight certain aspects of his life that we know about while ignoring other aspects of his life that we know about. And sadly, sometimes the same thing happens with Jesus. Heresies arise when people highlight one thread of the biblical teaching at the expense of the others. The information's all there for us, if we have ears to hear. And the information basically is this. Jesus is the eternal and divine Son who became the incarnate Son without ceasing to be the divine Son, okay? For our salvation... And after dying for sinners, was raised again and exalted to the Father's right hand from whence he gives gifts through the Holy Spirit so that we all can become more like him. That's a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> that was a long, that was like a Pauline kind of sentence I just stuck together there. But you know, that is Christmas. That is the meaning of the advent of Jesus. And so let us rejoice that, in fact, Emmanuel has come. Let us rejoice that Emmanuel is here by the power of the Holy Spirit, and let us rejoice that he shall come again. Let us pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to grow in our understanding of who Christ is, of who the eternal Son is and what he has done, how he was humbled for our sake, how he's been exalted, that we can come to a full and right understanding of these things so we don't end up in heresy, recognizing that even if we... Isolate one of these three things from my sermon, we fall into a pit of heresy. So help us to receive all that the Scriptures teach us. Father, I ask that you would help us to use the gifts that you have given for the growth of the body, that we indeed uh, would become the fullness of Christ as time progresses we ask this for our good because it's good for us to become more like Jesus we also ask it for your glory because you are glorified when people reflect accurately who you are because we are restored in your image we we display your character before a world that needs to know there's something better than what they see on TV. That there's something good that remains in this world because you have placed your image in people here. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.